Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. In this special edition, we're looking ahead to September and whether students will be able to return to campuses. We're asking what universities can do to improve their online learning offer. And we're thinking through what students might be expecting. It's all coming up. There are huge upsides to that um, in terms of access, in terms of the ability for students to students who may not have traditionally accessed um, higher education because they were parents or carers or commuting was was not possible, and all sorts of things that that, that blended offer or online offer can facilitate. And I think actually, I'm using words that I think will. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Debbie McVitie, recording from my spare room in North London. On the regular show this week, our panel dived into the financial issues facing universities as a result of COVID-19 and the prospect of a government bailout for universities or students. In this special edition, we're exploring the challenges for universities and students looking ahead to next September, assuming we won't be back to business as usual. Universities are starting the race to get their learning online and create something students will be excited to show up for in the autumn, and it's not exactly straightforward. As usual, we have three amazing guests to help us make sense of it all. In Coventry, we have Andrew Turner, Associate PDC at Coventry University. Andrew, I know it's a tough time for everyone right now, but do you have a highlight you can share with us from the week? I think the highlight of my week has been the when I took delivery of this enormous microphone that was sent to me for, the, <laughs> for doing this podcast. So it is a, a thing to behold. On the University of Bath campus, we've got Eve Olcock, SU president of Bath SU and general friend of the show. Eve, what's your highlight of the week been? Um, my highlight was signing up for Disney Plus so that I could rewatch all of the uh, Disney shows of my childhood, which is getting me through lockdown. <laughs> and we'll look forward to hearing your reviews on the show in June. <laughs> and in her living room in Tottenham, we have Rachel Curzon's Chief Partnerships Officer at Isla. Rachel, what's been your highlight of the week? Um, so we actually are a remote company. And so we've been doing this sort of remote thing for quite a while now. And I think uh, probably the highlight for me has been the virtual appreciations that we that we usually do in our weekly meetings, but that come through as sort of thanks from team member to team member. Um, and it's been sort of nice to see how supportive the team have been of one another, particularly when we've got parents wrangling toddlers and all sorts of homeschooling things happening whilst also trying to to kind of keep the uh, the trains running on time. Oh, lovely. Right. First up, as students begin their summer term, universities have been moving heaven and earth to get courses moved online. But that's just the beginning. If restrictions in movement remain in place throughout the summer, as seems likely in some form, students may not be able to come back to campus in September, potentially creating all sorts of problems for universities. Andrew, can we come to you first? And can you tell us a bit about how you were thinking about your online offering for students even before all, COVID, all of this COVID-19 business started? Coventry has got a long history of using digital support learning. We were one of the very first universities um, in the late 90s when we adopted a VLE to support all our modules. Um, it's always been a priority for us. Um, COVID has come along, it's presented some opportunities and challenges and it's accelerated our thinking really in being able to, how we're going to promote engagement, um, how we're going to promote learning through digital um, rather than our digital learning platforms just being a repository for content. So this has been a really um, opportune moment to think about how we can um, 
deliver online for our students in May, keep our um, for both continuing students and our students that um, will be joining for the first time. We know that our students have very different demands um, for their learning, and it's about trying to meet their expectations. And obviously, you've got quite a you've got quite a diverse bunch of students. Um, at Coventry and, um, you know, st- studying in all sorts of different ways. Can you kind of give us a bit of a flavour of the, th- of the, of the different kind of, uh, students that you're, you're, you're trying to kind of deliver that engagement for? We have a very diverse student population, a very international student population. Um, we've got students from Coventry, from nationally, um, EU students, and we also have students joining us at different points in the year. So for May, we've got students that commence with us in September, January, and we've got new students starting with us in May. So, it's about having a digital offer that meets those different needs at different points in their journeys. Um, we believe, I mean, one of the decisions we've taken as a university is to continue to complete our students, to allow our students to complete this semester, but then in May to go fully online to enable our students to continue with their studies. Um, we believe this has been really crucial from um, both an access to education point of view for our students, but also for um, enabling our students to progress, um, graduate, um, and continue. And are you getting, you know, you know, having having moved things online, are you getting indications now about how that's going down with students? Um, you know, are you able to do things like track engagement and, and sort of understand where the kind of, I guess, pain points are for that? at this stage yes we've got uh, i mean the staff have worked incredibly hard in at very short notice moving teaching and learning um, online during the semester and we've just completed our uh, examination week which we've moved entirely online um, something like twenty four thousand sittings have just been completed online um, the feedback from our students that are going through that have been um, finishing off this semester has been um, very positive very appreciative of how staff have adapted to this situation and, and continue with their learning. And what do you, in thinking ahead to September, do you, do you expect, I mean, and actually you mentioned that, of course, you're taking your student intake throughout the year. So perhaps September isn't the kind of major crunch point for you. But, you know, looking kind of perhaps from a kind of whole sector perspective, do you think that students will be showing up in September? Have, or have, you know, have you had questions about deferrals or or kind of people ask, asking whether it's possible to do things in a different way? We've had, we, well, firstly, we simply don't know what's going to happen in September. So we have to make provision. One of the things we've done for our May students is we've taken a decision at Coventry that we're um, moving all our students from our traditional VLE, which is currently Moodle, um, to Aula. And for May, we're moving um, up to 100 modules and courses onto Aula um, to provide them with um, really an excellent uh, an excellent experience online and improved and an enhanced, um, engaged um, experience online for those students and utilising learning designers from, from Aula to help um, in structuring those programmes. For September, we really don't know what's going to happen. Um, so it's about planning for that. It's about being able to move seamlessly from what would have been face-to-face um, to fully online if needed. Um, we we know there may be periods coming where we might have to have a lockdown and then open up again. So it's about being able to plan and having a flexible approach to address those um, eventualities. And it's, it's some of this about planning, I guess, for the, for the kind of worst-case scenario in the hope that it, it, it doesn't come about, but even if it does... You know, you've got a good plan in place, and you know, and some very high quality online learning. Absolutely, and it's and it's not just about um, moving from face to face to what we call or traditionally call, say, remote teaching. 
this is about delivering an experience online which is engaging it's aligned to the values of the of the institution in terms of delivering an engaged um, student experience um, and it, it's not just about making do um, so it is about that planning it's about planning for flexibility uh, Rachel I mean we talk you know we've, we've been talking in kind of very general terms about courses being moved online but of course you know are there some courses that just simply cannot be delivered online? I mean, are there some subject areas where it is, it is physically impossible to do online study? That's an interesting question. I think in practice, when you kind of look um, initially at the way in which lots of courses are delivered when we're not in a scenario like like the one we're in now, um, the initial response might be to, to assume, yes, you know, you have things like labs where um, it might seem difficult to understand how you might do, for example, practical provision and things like that um, if you were online only. But I think to be honest, um, one of the things that, that we're seeing at Aula is that there's a real kind of ecosystem of tools that are now beginning to, to exist within tech that really do allow for um, lots and lots of these other um, types of learning to happen um, online. You know, you have organisations like Labster who will do uh, virtual labs and things like that for, for STEM subjects. And in practice, we've actually worked for a long time now with um, an institution called Ravensbourne University London, which is an art and design institution. And, and they're they have a, a third term that they're teaching in now, um, and they are continuing um, with all of the art and design work, but students are working um, on, on those things from their homes. Now, obviously, there are tools that might be absent, um, but usually there is there is a way through that. And as Andrew says, it's not about making do, it's about actually finding new ways of working that in which you can kind of discover new things about the way in which disciplines can be taught and, and learned um, that, are, that are productive for students. And Andrew... I mean, obviously, this is a really stressful time for for university staff. You know, you know, both academic and professional. But you know, what what support are you finding that that, that staff are needing, or or what kind of um, what you know, what what's helpful in 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 affecting that transition? It, it, you're right. It is a, a very stressful time for university staff to adapt to teaching online. Firstly, also um, assessing online and, and and very very rapid having to adapt very quickly um, to a very dynamic situation. So for us, it's about putting in place um, support and guidance for teaching online, very practical support and guidance, um, support and guidance coming from our, from the various groups in the University of the Learning Technologists um, that we have to, to support that. And also it's about um, support for ways of working and as a university, making sure that um, we've got support for staff in how they work online, putting those support structures in place. Eve, I mean, we've got NSS going on at the minute. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, and obviously, kind of, no one quite knows what's going to happen with the TEF. Um, and, and I'm sure, and I'm, you know, and I'm sure that right now, students are kind of, you know, accept that there's that this is a really challenging time. Um, are there going to be more student complaints that you know our university is going to take the hit in the NSS? And, and you know, and what 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 how, you know, and, and how kind of I guess how, how seriously should we t- take that? As, as a kind of as a problem a problem or, or part of this picture yeah so so I think you know like this is such a complex thing that you know when you start to think about NSS and TEF actually it, it feels so sort of distant from what's happening on the ground because they don't they don't relate to students immediate um, circumstances and experiences I think I think the thing that is going to be crucial for universities when considering I suppose things like the NSS is is how are they how are they engaging with students and gathering really robust feedback from all different types of students 
as a matter of day-to-day business whilst they're making all of these um, very quick and very complex and difficult decisions so that they are actually embedding a culture of, of student engagement throughout this that, that would set them up well for NSS, I suppose, in the future. Um, and, you know, I, I have a little bit of a, a bugbear about um, uh, if you speak to university people about student engagement and they, they start talking to you about surveys about surveys basically and, yes. and actually you know it's 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 far broader than that and you, you can can't exactly you can't you can't wait for surveys necessarily in this environment you've got to be innovative and frequent in your in your communications to students because actually the robustness of um, decisions that institutions are making re- rely on that engagement. Andrew we're going to talk a bit more about student engagement in a minute so I, I don't want to preempt that but I, I did want to kind of ask whether I mean obviously we've had guidance from OFS and QAA basically saying look you know do the best you can but you know in afterwards the, these are the sorts of things that people are going to be asking questions about um, in terms of academic quality and kind of securing um, standards for students and so on. Um, have you had to change how you think about, you know, I, I'm not thinking about quality in, in essence, but, you know, some of, perhaps some of the processes around um, course design and, and assessment design and, and you know, sort of have, have you had to speed things up or, or, or change how you approach these questions? Certainly if with assessment design, uh, where you've got a dispersed com- student community around the world, um, that presents um, challenges and moving all that assessment um, d- assessment online, particularly when you're moving a, a large number of, of exams. So taking account of time zones, um, availability of when your systems are available, when that support's available, has really needed to think through quite carefully um, around how we run those. Time zones, of course, massive confusion to students, um, you know, and so when you're communicating with students who are in um, China, um, obviously there's a big time difference there, making sure you you know, you open up for um, a window when they can undertake those assessments, submit them that's convenient for them. Um, it It's required a lot of thinking through. Um, also scaling up in terms of our systems, making sure that there's that capacity to handle large numbers of assessments at any one particular time um, has been important. And so far, um, touch wood, um, everything's gone um, gone well for us. Mm. That's famous last words if ever I heard them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and have you have you had? I mean, are are you, are you having to move sort of move faster? Because um, one of the things that you know we're, we're sort of thinking about is this question about how do you, you know you're implementing strategies that perhaps might have been you know ex- you know fully you know fully established as, as kind of aspirations, but perhaps expected to be rolled out over to, over sort of three to five years. Um, is this you know is this changing ways of working at the kind of senior level? It is. Uh, yeah, it's at both in. Um, the regularity of meetings, touch points, um, it, it certainly changed. It's changed certainly with communications, just to um, address the point you made a, a bit earlier, that um, we are communicating with students uh, very regularly now and having to do that and respond very quickly as we make decisions and that raises questions. We have to be responding very quickly and actually because you're having to respond um, at a distance and through written communication, it's got to be actually very precise and clear to get that clarity of why you've made decisions, explaining those decisions, and then being able to address the queries that come from those. Because every time you make a decision, it raises more queries. Students um, are very anxious um, at the moment, um, particularly those final year students um, who will be graduating this year. Um, very, they are anxious about whether this period is going to adversely affect um, their outcomes. So it's about putting in 
place um, mechanisms, systems to protect them, reassuring them and and communicating that we we are looking at this very carefully. Right, next up. We've begun by looking at this issue from the university perspective, but of course there are some big risks here to students' experience, well-being and outcomes. Eve, you've been very much at the front line in this transition and you've written for Wonky about how universities can communicate better with students during a crisis. What's your sense of where students are and, and you know, are they engaging with online learning? So I... I sense that we're coming out of the, isn't it so brilliant how quickly we've moved everything online uh, when it was the only option sort of phase um, and starting to realise this probably isn't as rosy a picture as we thought it was. And obviously this is um, dependent on how well each institution uh, was set up to to deliver online learning according to software and tech and stuff beforehand anyway. And I suppose we're, we're hearing from students generally that that teaching quality um, is is significantly decreased and not, not at the fault of staff either. So, you know, you've got staff um, scrambling to put together content to cover learning outcomes, but often meaning that it, um, it might just mean uploading previous year's material or finding uh, slots to deliver lectures, but then not recording it so that those in different time zones might not be able to access it and so there are gaps and inconsistencies in in provision and um, I've been contacting our, our trade unions to find out how you know how is it from actually the staff side and that that was much the same picture there it's it's clear from those conversations that there is a really really pressing need for universities to be gathering that engagement data um, whether it's numbers of students engaging um, in particular lecture content uh, you know how long did they watch all the way through um, all of this kind of stuff and then try to gleam a sense of of what the reasons behind that are and I think there's a real danger that the sector begins to use the current operations as a model of how to deliver online content moving forward but the reality is is that um, we won't be able to sustain this sort of ad hoc um, kind of response to a crisis when when September comes around and actually that might be sort of the norm of learning or indeed the blended learning um, model so uh, there's definitely uh, work to be done. And we saw um, an NUS survey this week that said that 65% of students think that the online courses that they've got right now are of good quality. And I think, you know, as we said before, there's a degree of tolerance, perhaps, with the, the situation as it stands and kind of recognition that university staff are, you know, wrangling their own toddlers and so on. But, you know, if if we get to September and October, um, you know, A, if this hasn't changed, you know, or there's, there's not the sense that it, that it will change, um, you know, what, what might the student response be to that? So I just think, I think we'll see calls for tuition fee refunds re-emerge and intensify. Um, I was in a meeting, a national meeting this morning, and someone said, um, we have to be cautious about using current student feedback as evidence that this model will work come September, because you're asking a whole new cohort of students to buy into that mode of, mode of learning. Um, universities won't be able to use the sort of immediate crisis as an excuse for that perhaps inconsistent or, or lower quality provision and just have a, um, a real sympathy for education officers who are going to have one hell of a workload next year and actually other officers are going to have to pull together to share that kind of academic representation if that is sort of the, the core tenet of the university experience and in some ca- cases the only aspect of university experience um I think it's worth mentioning, too, that being expected to do online learning from home is exceptionally difficult for marginalised students. Um, And whether that be because of digital poverty and access to technology or LGBT students who uh, home might be a really difficult place to be um, and students who might be suffering from domestic violence or abuse. And so for them, actually, the environment with which they're working is the initial barrier that actually if that can't be tackled or or helped, 
it doesn't matter whether the online learning provision itself is brilliant and engaging because they're just not in an environment or let alone in a headspace to be able to engage it to be engaging with it Mm. and and what's the impact of that on the SU I mean what what sort of issues are students raising or or what kind of um you know and and universities too what scope is there for universities to address those kind of really really difficult uh you know personal circumstances of students so I think the reality is probably creeping in that this for students that this might be the the mode of the of delivery of teaching for the for the foreseeable future and and you know with that comes that their you know justified sense of um injustice if you like that actually that this is not what they they signed up for and and I think um that coupled with um, confusion over no detriment policies and what the detail is and does that safety net apply to me and how does it apply to me and the um, the way that universities are communicating those very complex things out actually it's there are a lot of students I think are left in the dark and in terms of what the SU can be doing obviously utilizing all of its um, all of its usual sort of student representation um, avenues to be able to to be getting those voices but I was having a conversation internally earlier where we were saying usually we would be talking obviously to academic reps about this but actually there's um, no guarantee that those academic reps are particularly linked into their own cohorts who might be dispersed across the world at this stage and so actually we we are going to have to think of um, much better ways to be to be garnering um, that feedback and communicating it to the university and trying to come up with solutions. And Andrew do you think I mean as as part of this kind of um, expedited uh, up, <laughs> enhancement of, of, of online learning opportunities. There's going to have to be some thinking around um, student voice, student feedback. Um, you know, engaging students in in, the, in in this process is that is that going to have to? You know, are, are the ways that that is done going to have to change? They are. Um, I think we we will have to um, really be getting feedback from students on a very regular basis to ensure that we're responding um, to how things are going. This is a, a new situation for, for all universities and uh, new ways of working. So absolutely, we've got to engage and, and get that feedback and respond to that feedback very quickly. And Rachel, I mean, one of the things that's often said about online learning is, is and, and, you know, perhaps unfairly, I think, because it probably speaks to whether it's done, you know, well or badly, but um, is, is that, you know, that that's, it's, it, it can be harder for students to sustain engagement and particularly thinking about students from less advantaged backgrounds, perhaps with less experience of HE or, or kind of difficult family circumstances. You know, are there things that can be done in the online environment to support those students? Yeah, I think it's it, it, ultimately the reality of it is exactly as Eve said in the way that she talked about engaging with academic reps. The reality of this is that it is different. And, and so in practice, it's not the case that you cannot replicate the face-to-face. It's that you have to treat it differently and, and see it as building a different kind of community. And so, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about at Aula is how do you build an online community that can provide students with a sense of belonging that they might have got on campus or, or that they might um, experience when they're kind of at university face-to-face. But actually in this scenario, it's not just about um, that that mimicry of the face-to-face. It's actually about building a really productive and accessible um, online learning community that can support those students who most need it. And I think there is an argument to say that while students shouldn't be under pressure to kind of find the headspace to do things that they don't feel able to, um, to, to some of the environmental factors that, that Eve mentioned. I think it's also the case that bringing students some semblance of normality um, in terms of like connecting with them, with their fellow students, wherever they are, are in the world, but also connecting them with the learning and, and the discipline that they've chosen um, at university is also a real opportunity um, to some, somewhat alleviate potentially some of those more challenging factors that, that might be really, really tough for students right now. Now. And I think 
what we can do is a variety of things. I think we can embrace the variety that technology offers us. So students that might usually make videos of themselves and share them on their social media accounts in their Instagram stories or, or whatever, actually can students be sharing videos within their learning communities with their with their fellow students and their academics and actually finding ways to, to sort of use those behaviours that we see on social media, but within the online learning space in, in a way that can be positive towards building that sense of belonging. Yeah, sort of bringing, bringing life and learning closer together in a, in a way that makes sense. Eve, uh, we, you know, obviously, obviously, you know, for, for, for years now, we've talked about, you know, the importance of student well-being and the responsibilities of, of universities to, you know, foster student well-being and, um, you know, particularly student, student mental health. Um, I mean, can, can universities still be held responsible for those issues when students are not on campus? I think the danger is that they use the students are not on campus to, um, to not try their best to to contribute to it and I think uh, this is where partnership with the, with the students unions will be so important because students unions can reach out to students and connect with students online in a sense of belonging that universities are unable to and um, we've seen a sort of wave of online communities cropping up um, that SUs have organised which has been actually amazing to see uh, students connecting in that way and contributing to their online communities regardless of where they are in the world and so I think that um, universities are going to have to have to step up to the plate and I think at the moment there is potentially a sense and obviously students unions are closer to this so this is probably why but I get a sense that some universities are underestimating the impact on well-being that this is having and you know you'll see that student well-being is of utmost importance written into written into a paper and someone will mention it in a meeting but actually you know what's happening about the the cost saving um, activity that might need to happen that next year and and are they planning that for student services and are student services equipped with the capacity and the resource to be able to deliver their stuff online um what's you know what's the university going to do in terms of supporting the students union in delivering their inductions whatever that might look like because that inducts students into the students union who are able to facilitate that sense of community and we've done research at bath that shows very distinctly that students that are more involved in their students union have a higher level of student satisfaction and a better student experience so it will be in the university's interest to support the students' union in, in reaching out and, and doing that community belonging and wellbeing piece. Okay, before we move on to our final item, I want to let you know about an event we've got coming up on the 7th of May, online of course. Arla and Wonky are bringing the itchy sector together to ask what would a world-class remote learning experience look like and how on earth universities might be able to get there in just six short months. There'll be great speakers, great conversation and of course it'll all be from the comfort of your living room. To find out more, just go to wonky.com forward slash events. Finally, uh, every article you've read in online learning has said that simply transferring courses designed for face-to-face into an online equivalent doesn't work. But what does? Rachel, at Isla, you've been working with Coventry to get 100 courses fully online on the Isla Learning Experience platform for the start of May. What principles are you working with to create the sorts of courses that students are excited to show up for? Yeah, so I think um, what I would say on this is that Al have been working with a number of universities in the UK and, and the US um, for a little while now. And I think one of the things that's increasingly clear is that every university has um, those courses that, that will sort of seem to be uh, significantly uh, dreamlike, if you like, when they are transferred online. And and by that, I mean, it's it's the kind of course that anybody listening to this can think about as a programme offered at their university where they would point at it and say, this is where outstanding teaching is being done. And as a result, this is where excellent learning experiences um, are had. And I think those courses are the ones that, that often you can see students are excited to show up for them um, face to face 
Um, but it's also the case that, that as an increasing number of universities move some of their, have moved some of their programs online, there are often courses that can be pointed at um, to say those are courses that are building communities of, of learners and that have got really strong student cohorts. And whether they're in sciences or, or humanities or at sort of small specialist institutions, they always sort of seem to have in our experience um, three things in common. And so we talked a little bit about community earlier on, but that's really something that, that we see is at the heart often of these excellent learning experiences is that there is a community of learners and a strong sense of belonging from students to that learning cohort. Um, So there's obviously a kind of significantly higher level of community and sense of belonging within the institution itself, which is some of the things that Eve and Andrew touched upon. But actually often what we see is that sort of um, microcosm of that then at the learning level. We also often see that this learning is um, really active learning in terms of the approaches that are taken from a from a pedagogical perspective, um, and that the the students themselves are participating at a at a much higher rate. Um, and then we finally often also see that this learning has been adapted in a way that enables students to access it on any device. So it's often the case that these are the kinds of courses where actually lots of the resources and and lots of the ways in which students are interacting with the material um, and and with the the engagement itself is is being able to be done via laptop but also via mobile as well which is is crucial um particularly in this in this moment in time and so those have been sort of the three principles really from which we have worked at Aula and then we've been working really closely with the office for teaching and learning at Coventry um to to build out from from their existing teaching and learning approaches some principles to build into those those 100 modules and I think one of the concerns that lots of people have is that building a community and and particularly fostering a strong sense of belonging is really difficult if you've not had any face-to-face. And I think one of the things that was mentioned earlier, I think by Eve, was around this is going to be a new cohort of students in, in September, in Coventry's case, uh, in, in, in May, in a couple of weeks' time, it's going to be a new cohort. So those students aren't ones who've already built face-to-face relationships and are now just sort of sent home, if you like. These are students who've never met one another at all. And so really it's about challenging that assumption that you can't build community without people having ever met face-to-face. And and think thinking about it in a different way. So we know that lots of online communities already exist, you know, social lives, love lives, all sorts of things like that already exist without people being in the same physical space. And so it's about looking at some of those things and taking really deliberate actions in order to, to utilize the sort of technology to, to do that effectively. Um, and so we've seen that universities that can quickly kind of mobilize those high quality learning experiences are prioritizing the tools, but more importantly, the practice to support that learning community building. Um, okay, what you're describing, um, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting that you sort of, it's, it, you know, it's tech enabled, but it's not tech led, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, it's, either, you know, the focus is on about student behaviors and about how students um, engage with their learning. Um, and I wonder, do, you know, do the sorts of courses you're describing, particularly when, when they are delivered remotely, are they asking actually different things of students perhaps than from the kind of traditional face-to-face course? Yeah, I think in some ways they are. And I think that's also particularly important when you think about some of the access issues that that students might have. They might not have access to a laptop. They might not have um, a particularly conducive working environment in their home in order to, to take part. And so it's asking different things of students, but it's also attempting very 
purposefully to account for some of those other challenges that that might happen um and so you know you might find that in the face-to-face a student might attend a lecture they might attend a more interactive session as well and then 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 they might do that for a series of weeks and then take part in an assessment and I think in practice what we're really looking to achieve with these modules is a way in which students can have um both asynchronous and synchronous engagement not just with the the course materials themselves but also with their peers and so one of the things that that we recommend that that students do is actually offer opportunities outside of the formal um the formal face-to-face sessions that they'll have um to engage with one another on kind of project work and things like that so it's still asking the sort of structurally the things are similar and familiar but it's asking them to do things in a way that's perhaps suit their time zones better and perhaps there will be more sort of self-organization of things like that as well to facilitate that Andrew, obviously this, you know, moving to the shift, the, the shift that Rachel's describing, I mean, this was something that you were already considering anyway. Um, and, and of course, COVID-19 has, has made that especially urgent to happen. But I mean, do you, do, do you see the kind of model as, as being, as capturing the kind of future of, of, of what students' expectations are likely to be? Absolutely. I mean, for some time we've had, uh, one of our priorities is to enhance engagement online um, and really take advantage of the opportunities that online learning brings both in terms of um, how students engage with um, the subject and the content but also how uh, digital can enhance those online communities as an example um, at the beginning of this academic year um, we started with a new online induction for the institution so that students were engaging online before the before arrival we were actively um, developing communities um, with students before they arrived on campus so that they were introduced to materials introduced to ways of working forming those communities those connections both between students and with the institution before they arrived so this has accelerated things in terms of our plans for um, certainly in moving on to uh, the Aula platform, but it just present that opportunity to to really take advantage um, of the online platforms and and to try to develop those online communities. It, it is a different way of working, but it is a, a real opportunity. And are there choices you're having to make now to kind of establish, you know, recognizing that this is something you would you might you might have done in rather more time? Are mm. there particular choices about priorities that you're having to make now to? make sure that you're bridging to this future appropriately within the time available, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, there are priorities um, in terms of, in, um, in terms of the courses you're, you're working with, in, in terms of, I, I think one of the priorities has been bringing forward how we support staff in delivering um, in a different way, in delivering in an engaged way, and how we can best support staff to plan those learning journeys for students, to plan for engagement and how they work. It it doesn't work by just trying to replicate what you do face-to-face online um, with, you know, a one-hour lecture. That's just not going to work. Um, So it has um, speeded up, really, that work to support staff in how they can design these learning experiences without having to develop masses of content, without having to do masses of online recordings, but how to design that learning journey to be able to deliver an engaged student experience, creating those communities. As you say, those students um, haven't met each other before. So we have to do that socialisation on the platforms. We have to develop those those communities on the platform. And Eve, as, as you're hearing this, you know, does, does this sound 
to you like a positive future or, or, or do you think that there's still going to be that student expectation of, I guess, the more traditional, you know, lectures and seminars, you know, <laughs> the, you know, the kind of, I guess, what, what, what Jim and the team call sort of academic tourism of, uh, you know, having, being, being on campus and being in a particular sort of environment. Do you think that's, that's still going to feature in the future? So my, my, suspicion, my suspicion is that the, the expectation of what student life and university life is like sort of three years down the line will be significantly different. However, I think that that expectation will lag behind the progress that the sector needs to do in order to adapt to the new environment. And so I think students at large will go through this sort of denial phase, if you like, almost of the grief curve, whereby like what, what the current uh, provision is looking like in their immediate future is will still remain in their mind as something that they perceive to be it's just temporary and I will get that that university experience that I've looking I've been looking forward to since I was sort of 16 um but I think I think they will that expectation will will adapt though after the fact and then I think we will start to see something really interesting about student behavior as to what what student life looks like in a potentially more permanent sort of blended model of learning and actually will they be training up in other sort of um, skills and things in addition to getting their academic qualifications whilst they're doing this because there won't be that traditional um, sort of insulated bubble of an experience on a campus somewhere. To kind of wrap up I suppose you know we, we, we're all questioning and, and kind of deal, dealing with the question of, of whether you know life as we know it you know across all of our kind of in families and our professional lives is going to kind of change significantly. Rachel you know what? What do you think is going to be the kind of the, the big long-term impact of COVID on society that the education is going to need to take account of? Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, to be honest, this has really just sped up something that was that was on the way for a lot of of education anyway. And I think um, it's really interesting just hearing Eve talking about this kind of the, the sort of potential new normal of blended and and actually there are huge upsides to that um, in terms of access, in terms of the ability for students to students who may not have traditionally accessed um, higher education because they were parents or carers or commuting was was not possible and all sorts of things that that, that blended offer or online offer can facilitate. And I think actually I'm using words that I think will will somewhat disappear from, from the higher education vernacular and actually we will no longer see courses as online only or blended only or face-to-face only. Optimistic about the future? I am. I think there's um, great opportunities. I think, you know, listening to Rachel there and, and how courses will have to become digitally enabled, I think that will lead to us being able to have a much enhanced student experience to be able to really... Um, where it is face-to-face, really add real value there to what that face-to-face means, you know, uh, rather than maybe it just being a didactic session, this should be a really engaged session uh, where we can, students can develop new skills, capabilities. Um, so I, th- I think it, it is an exciting future. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. Thanks to Eve, Andrew, Rachel and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 